I've got to tell you how much I appreciate this church and especially our praise team and all those who work hard to bring us into the throne of grace every week. I was able to watch and participate in our worship service last week, even though I was 2,000 miles away in Arizona, because I was taking my 8 o'clock morning walk, which was not so early out there because Michigan time, it was time for church. And so I'm walking from our hotel, which was one mile downtown, so I could scope out where we were going to park later for the wedding for my nephew, and then walked back to my room again. And I got to have church right there on my walk. Thank you, all of you, for making that possible. Yay, good for you. Today, Mark's Oreo cookie, and speaking of Mark, he did a great job of reminding us about the real memorial service, by the way, so thank you for that as well. Well done. Today, we're picking back up in Mark's gospel. Mark chapter 5, and this is going to have to be a two-parter again because there's just so much rich stuff in this chunk of Scripture, verses 21 through 43. But in order to get through the whole Oreo cookie section, as we're calling it today, we're going to look at the first cookie and most of the creamy white filling today. Next week, we're going to pick up a little bit of that leftover creamy white filling and the second cookie in this two-parter. I don't know if you are aware that there are something, some things different in Mark's gospel than there are in some other gospels in the New Testament, but this is one of those examples of something that kind of sets Mark apart. He'll start a story, that's the first cookie, and we know where that story is going, but then all of a sudden there's this creamy white filling that's a little bit different, and yet it's somehow connected. And it goes well together. They taste good together. But then he'll come back to that original story and finish it off, as we see in this chunk that we're studying, and that's the second cookie. And we're going to find out, I'm I'm dangling the carrot so you'll hang in there with us. It won't be next week when I'll pick it up because I'll be gone again out of town for one more Sunday. We've got these two weeks that just happen to be every other week, so Tom is going to be bringing you some good teaching next week. So you've got to hang in there, come and hear Tom, but then we get part two the Sunday after that, which coincidentally and I think very appropriately, is going to fall on Father's Day because we're going to learn some more things about the Father's character and the Father's heart on Father's Day from the second cookie. All right, that's giving you an overview of where we're headed for this thing. We're going to see here in this first cookie that there was a synagogue leader who's pleading with Jesus to come heal his daughter who is at the point of death. She's dying. She's very near death. That's cookie one. But that particular ministry item, this opportunity, is interrupted by a woman who sneaks in behind Jesus and just touches the hem of his garment. And she had had a 12-year illness. We're going to probably look uh, two weeks from now in that part two also at the age of the young girl and how that compares to the number of years that this woman has struggled with her ailment. I don't think that's any coincidence either, and we'll see that. And then we get taken back to our first story since the New information is revealed, and we find out that a servant comes and announces, I'm sorry, it's too late. No need to trouble the master now. Your daughter, unfortunately, has died, and Jesus takes care of that situation, too. So that's cookie number two. So there we have it, the Oreo cookie presentation. And I would like for us to get the whole gamut of this passage by reading through the entire section today, even though we're only going to talk about the first cookie and the filling. I am reading this time from the New American Standard Bible, Because I compared different versions, and this contains more of the verbiage that I think conveys really good truth in a way that we can really grasp. And so that's the version that I'm choosing to read from today. Mark 5, 21 through 43. 
When Jesus had crossed over again in the boat to the other side, meaning of the other side of the Lake of Galilee, a large crowd gathered around him, and so he stayed by the seashore. One of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up, and on seeing him, fell at Jesus' feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. And he, capitalized, meaning Jesus, went off with him, and a large crowd was following him and pressing in on him. Verse 25, a woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years and had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse, and after hearing about Jesus, she came up on the crowd, came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak. For she thought, if I just touch his garments, I will get well. Immediately, the flow of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Immediately, Jesus, perceiving in himself that power proceeding from him had gone forth, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And the disciples said to him, uh, You see the crowd pressing in on you, and you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see the woman who had done this. But the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. While he was still speaking, they came from the house of the synagogue official, saying, Your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? But Jesus, overhearing what was being spoken, said to the synagogue official, Do not be afraid any longer. Only believe. And he allowed no one to accompany him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the synagogue official, and he saw a commotion and people loudly weeping and wailing. And he entered, or, and entering in, he said to them, Why make a commotion and weep? The child has not died, but is asleep. And they began laughing at him. But putting them all out, he took along the child's father and mother and his own companions and entered the room where the child was. And taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which translated means little girl. I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl got up and began to walk, for she was 12 years old. And immediately, they were completely astounded. And he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this. And he said that something should be given to her to eat. May the Lord instruct us in this word and illuminate it and help us apply it to our lives. Let's look at these two stories that were presented this way. We're going to look, first of all, to see why it's so purposeful that God inspired his writers to write the way they did. And we're going to see that in more detail in two weeks from now. 
But we're going to see some things by categories right now as we look at this passage. First of all, let's look at the timing of this event. That helps give us context about what took place just before that. This happens just after Jesus had crossed over on purpose to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee or the Lake of Galilee, Lake of Gennesaret, all the same body of water, three different names. And he went over there and found that man who was possessed by a legion of demons, Time for that pop quiz again. You got it right the last time. How many Roman soldiers are in a legion? 6,000. Yes, I'm so glad that it's sticking. Good for you, 6,000. So in other words, there were a lot of demons in that demon-possessed man on the eastern side of the lake. He went over there, sought him out, Gentile territory, took care of that one incident, didn't allow the man to follow him back with him because the man wanted to follow the guy who had healed him, made him whole again set the captive free, fulfilled all those things that were uh, told about Jesus, the Messiah, and what he would do when he was fulfilling that scripture from Isaiah. And then he went back across, left the man to go and minister to his own people and become a great witness over there. The witness was made even more powerful because of the pig incident, because of that uh, interrupted supply chain of bacon on the eastern side. And so we know that he was there ministering in a big way to Gentiles in a way that only he could because they were his own people. And then Jesus intentionally, again, comes all the way back this time to the western side of the lake near Capernaum, which is where he did the bulk of his ministry in the northwestern part of Galilee. And a large crowd, it says, had gathered around him, and so he stayed on the seashore. So here he's back again. The crowds are back again. He's teaching again, and some good things are about to happen. Now, let's look at the crowds for just a second. Many in the crowds were not disciples of Jesus, and yet they followed him around. Why would they do that? Same reason a lot of people would follow a crowd today. If we saw a crowd gathered in a street somewhere, and we wanted to say, what is happening that's drawing that crowd? We might go and join them and ask, what's going on down there, and why is there a crowd? Crowds tend to draw crowds. And that's what was happening, I'm sure, in some of these instances. It's also quite possible that some of the buzz was getting out to some of these folks. And in their version of tweets, which is probably word of mouth, it was going around that there was this miracle person doing crazy things, and they wanted to come and see for themselves. And maybe they were thinking, and maybe if he can do those powerful things for those other people, could it be that he would do something powerful for me as well? That may be another good reason why the crowds were there. And yet, we also see that not everybody in those crowds, as large as they were, became totally devoted followers of Jesus. I think the same is true today. We have a lot of people of looky-loos. They're curious people, but they don't necessarily want to say, yes, I want to give my life totally to Jesus Christ. They're good at being looky-loos, and they enjoy the entertainment value, but they're not quite ready to place their faith totally in God And they don't want to recognize that Jesus is God incarnate, God's son. So it's one one thing to say, Lord, help give me what I request. Or meet my need. Heal me of this. Give me this. Help me with that job that I'm looking for. Whatever that is, it's one thing to do that. It's another to say, God, whatever you want of me, here's a blank check. You fill in the amount. I'm yours. And that's what we continually see from this point forward in Mark's gospel, that Mark is trying to show us that there's a difference between being a part of the crowd and being a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. We see this difference between a crowd follower and a true follower in Luke 6.46, where Jesus says, so why do you keep calling me Lord, Lord, when you don't do what I say? Good question. It's like he's saying, 
You keep using that word, Lord. I don't think it means what you think it means. We see time and again that the miracles of Jesus confirm his authority as Lord. That's the purpose of the miracles. He's not there just to be a miracle worker. All the miracles served the purpose of confirming his identity, and that was important. Well, we see that the real reason he's coming, and I'm kind of diverging a little bit from Mark so that I can show you these categories that I think are important. He came for eternal purposes, eternal healing, eternal feeding. For example, in the healing, Isaiah 53, 5, which is highly misquoted and misused often, when it says, but he was pierced for our transgressions, meaning for them, on behalf of them, to atone for them. He was crushed for our iniquities. He did those things on the cross so that he could eliminate the consequences of those things. It doesn't say that he did that so that we could just be physically healed. This particular passage in Isaiah 53 is all about atonement. It's all about the eternal ramifications of what Christ did for us on the cross. It says, by his wounds we are healed, and that word healing is in context of for our transgressions, for our iniquities. So he's healing us from the consequences of sin and death, which is the result of the separation from God. And then there's eternal feeding as well. Steve alluded to this, that Jesus was saying, I'm the bread of life, I'm the living water. Jesus had said, it's one of these terms he used for himself in John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. Now, he wasn't talking about physical hunger. I think that's fairly clear. When he says, I'm the door, he didn't mean I'm made out of oak. He's saying, yes, I'm the bread of life, and spiritually speaking, for eternity, I am the sustenance that you need that will carry you through forever. And yet, while Jesus was continually affirming his authority on earth by doing these earthly miracles for people, trying to show them something that was more permanent that they could uh, have in their lives, that they would place their faith in him, people kept looking for the temporal. And they kept trying to interpret everything he was doing for them temporally. They wanted immediate satisfaction rather than permanent and eternal satisfaction. So now let's get to the cookie number one, Jairus' need, verses 22 through 24. Mark refers to him right off the bat as one of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up and on seeing him fell at his feet, implored him earnestly saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. And he went off with him and a large crowd was following him and pressing in on him. Interesting. I started looking up Jairus. He doesn't feature prominently in the New Testament. This is about the only time you're going to read about Jairus by name. And even after Mark mentions him the first time, he continually refers to him after that as a synagogue official. Interesting. He's not the head honcho. He doesn't say he's the head honcho or the big banana or the top dog of the synagogue. He is a synagogue official, which may mean that he was one of several elders or leaders that was a part of a team of leadership there with the synagogue. And he continually says that. Why would Mark think it's important to refer to him as a synagogue official? Because he was Jewish. And some of the people that were the most upset with Jesus and what Jesus had been doing were the Jewish leaders. So this guy, by doing what he did, we're already starting to see he's willing to put himself at odds with his peers by falling at Jesus' feet. For one thing, it's not very uh, dignified. 
But when you're completely desperate, you're willing to set aside your dignity and do whatever it takes. Brokenness has a way of doing that for folks. And he was a broken man. We already see in Mark 3, 6 that the Pharisees had already begin, begun to plot with the Herodians to see how they could kill Jesus. So this is no small matter. It's not a matter of being slightly embarrassed. He's willing to completely separate himself from the others in the leadership team for the synagogue for the sake of going to the one man that he believes has the ability to do something that he desperately needs, which is to save his daughter from death. Since Mark has told us that there's a crowd here, he's wanting us to consider what would the rest of the people in this crowd think about this synagogue official running before Jesus and doing that? It's kind of bad PR for synagogue officials, but it's great PR for Jesus. And he's doing that not so that he can give PR to Jesus. He's doing it because he recognizes Jesus has the authority and the power to do things that nobody else can do. And I think the crowd might have seen that and thought, that's a Jewish official over there, isn't it? And yet he's turning to Jesus. Who is this man, Jesus? And it becomes almost a continual theme through the book of Mark. Who is this man? Well, there was criticism that starts to emerge. I listened to somebody who was criticizing Christianity for being opportunistic and preying on people who are at their lowest in trying to convert them and make converts into this cult called Christianity. I've seen that on YouTube. I actually had a real first-person interview with somebody. They were interviewing me. I wasn't interviewing them. They had tons of questions. It was rat-a-tat-tat. And this was one of their things. Well, isn't it true that Christians tend to prey on people who are at their lowest ebb? They go after them because they know they're vulnerable. And I thought, well, it shouldn't be. There are probably some who will teach that and shame on them if they're looking for us to be opportunists, we're not opportunists in Christianity. We're trying to be Christ-like. And so we're looking for ministry opportunities so that we can join God where God is already at work in other people's lives. We do hear of so many testimonies of people that when they turned to Christ, they were hitting rock bottom. They had nowhere else to go. And so this is what happens a lot when people are in death or divorce, or displacement, the three Ds that people talk about. When things are going really bad for somebody, where else have they to go? And so they turn to Jesus Christ. That's not opportunism. That's just what's happening here. And we should note, and I think it's good for us to see, that that's not what was happening. Jesus didn't seek Jairus out. He wasn't being opportunistic. Jairus is the one who came running up to him, busting through the crowd and falling at his feet, begging him to help with his situation. When we humans run out of options, we don't really seem to care about much of anything else. There's something about brokenness that tends to weed out the trivial in life. I had a pastor friend of mine back in Adrian years ago, and he lost a 16-year-old daughter to leukemia, sadly. And I bumped into him about six months after his daughter had gone to heaven. She was a believer, thankfully. And I said, how are you doing? I know this has got to have been just a horrific path you have had to walk on. And he said, it has been. He said, it's been a lot of grief. It's been filled with great grief, but also with great grace. And God has been so good to us. He said, I think I've been struggling through the anger phase of my grief right now because I get so mad at other people who are so trivialized, they get upset at the trivial, tiny, petty little things in life. And I'm thinking, I just lost a daughter. And you're upset because of your paper cut? 
or whatever it was that they were whining about. He said, I'm having to really check myself on that because I understand they didn't lose a daughter. So for them, yeah, that's probably important. But he was cutting right past the trivial. And it was life or death for him. And that's the way it was with Jairus. This was life or death. And the trivial went right out the window. He didn't care about anything else. He was just myopic and focused on Jesus Christ, the one who could help him. Well, we see a few good leaders there. And I'm going to point us to John 12, 42, because it helps us see something else. It's easy for us in looking at these Pharisees and the Sadducees and other people who are plotting to kill Jesus and paint them with a broad brushstroke. And every time we hear the word Pharisee or Sadducee or religious Jewish leader, we go, oh, religious Jewish leader, huh? Yeah, those bad guys, they all hated Jesus. Well, not all of them. We can see that there were a few good ones there. In fact, John tells us that. Uh, Nicodemus is a good example. He was the guy who sought Jesus out by night, John chapter 3, where he got that little uh, conversation with Jesus about being born again. He had to ask what that meant. And then we can also see that Nicodemus had gone later with Joseph of Arimathea, a wealthy Jewish leader who secretly for a while believed in Jesus. Of course, he let the cat out of the bag after Jesus was crucified because he actually went to Pontius Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus so that they could bury it in that borrowed tomb. These were two people who were quite prominent and yet they feature in the scriptures as people who turn to Christ. So they're not all bad. John's gospel shows us that many people believed in Jesus' identity and power, including Jewish leaders. He says in John 12, 42, many people did believe in him. However, including some, uh, many people, let me reread that because I put the comma in the, right, in the wrong syllable. Many people did believe in, in him, however, including some of the Jewish leaders, but they wouldn't admit it for fear that the Pharisees would expel them from the synagogue. Now, clearly that was not happening with Jairus. If he got expelled, he got expelled, but he wanted his daughter to live. And yet there were many people who were starting to try to place their faith in Jesus Christ. Some were more secretive, some were more bold, but there were a lot of good ones there. So not all Jewish leaders were stinkers, like the ones that we tend to think about who accused Jesus of doing miracles by the power of Beelzebul, by example. Um, it's probably a good time for me to put a really quick parenthetical statement for some of you who may have seen something in the news in the last couple of weeks because it's starting to emerge about the Southern Baptist Convention and a, an apocalyptic report that came out about sex abuse that had been allegedly covered up for a long time back decades ago. I will condense this for you very briefly. We are loosely affiliated with the SBC, Southern Baptist Convention, by some gifts every year because we have one couple from our church and their kids who are through their missions agency, in fact, and we've been praying for that family. And a little tiny chunk of our money, it's not much, but it's important because uh, the cooperative program of the Southern Baptist Convention supports the largest Protestant missionary force in the world because there are enough small churches all contributing to that, and so we believe in their mission uh, support system. And their statement of faith lines up with our statement of faith. But what I found out was that there are a very small number of people at the top of the national convention who have control over the day-to-day -day operations. That's in part because the way the convention works is that we'll send messengers from church from churches all over the country to their national conventions every year. They vote on the policies that are put forth. It's only a very short convention and then all these other people have to fulfill those policies by carrying out the business aspects of the convention. 
One thing that makes this a sticky wicket is that we are not hierarchical in leadership in the Southern Baptist Convention. So we don't have a pope or a bishop or somebody who can tell you what you have to do or what your policies will be. Each church is autonomous. So it's a cooperative relationship rather than an autonomous relationship. But unfortunately, I think what happened is that there were some people at the top who were getting credible reports of sexual abuse from different churches. And rather than pass that information back into the hands of people who could do something about it, they just kept that information to themselves saying, they're autonomous, we can't really tell them what to do. And many people, including many of the messengers from last year's convention, disagreed with that approach and said, we've got to do something different in how we deal with sex abuse and how it's reported and how we're keeping people safe in our congregations. From the top down, even though they don't have the ability to tell us what to do, we want them to help instruct us. And if they get credible sources, we need to have a system in place so that it gets dealt with in a redemptive and helpful fashion. And I would say, too, that we as elders have decided it's, it's never a good idea to have a knee-jerk reaction when there's something like this that's taking place. And I'm sure that there'd be a lot of people that would say, oh, well, we should just leave the convention then because this is a terrible thing. And it is a terrible thing. There were real victims involved in this situation. But until we can see if we're going to actually make proactive changes, which I believe are starting to be made, we ought not to just have a knee-jerk reaction and run away from it. I think we need to stay and try to be part of the change agent if we can. Fortunately, and I have some inside track on this one, a guy that I went to school with both in college in Arizona and in seminary in Texas, a very good friend of mine, Ed Litton, was elected last year as the president of the convention. He's a man of character. He's a man who's already starting to say things in print because he is being asked, what do you feel about that? I really think that he's got has God's heart at mind in how they're going to be dealing with this issue. And I feel like they're on the road to making some good sweeping changes. Rather than what had been done a long time ago, in one of the articles I read about it this week, it said, uh, they were quoting the old axiom, after everything was said and done, more was said than done. And unfortunately, that can be the case in a situation like this. I don't believe it's going to be that case. It looks to me like they're making some good sweeping changes. They hired a third-party investigating team, and they, they put forth this report. The messengers last year voted to waive attorney-client privileges because they said all this has to come out in the open. We are people of the light. We don't live in the darkness. We don't want to be people who are known for hiding things. So I think they're really on the right track. And it's a matter of prayer, and I bring that to you just so that if anybody asks you about that, you'll know a little bit more about that situation. And what I'm saying about my friend Ed and some of the people that are involved in this change, there are a few good leaders there too. They're not all bad. Just as we see in Mark's gospel, they're not all bad. They're not all stinkers. Yes, there were a few at the top who were making terrible decisions decades ago, and they will be held accountable for that, I pray either here in this life or by God in the next life. They are going to have to answer for their deeds. However, there are some who are really trying to turn to God and join him in a way that would be extremely redemptive. Same thing is true today just as it was back then. So yeah, Jesus takes man-made, self-oriented, oppressive, manipulative, religious leaders to task, as we should today. But he's not against religion per se. And this is another thing that we catch from some of the skeptics these days. They'll say all religion is just bad. Broad brushstroke, sweeping statement. Jesus even showed that. He came to do away with religion. Well, no, not really. He came to do away with manipulative, oppressive, self-seeking religion people. 
But when he was giving us some specific commands like having the Lord's Supper, as oft as you do it, do this in remembrance of me, that sounds to me like he intended for us to do that often and that we were going to continue to have religious observances. So he's not doing away with religion. He's doing away with the wrong kind of religion. I think that's good for us to be aware of. Now, let's get into the cookies filling, shall we? Verse 25. A woman who had had a hemorrhage for 12 years and had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse. Man, you can't help but develop empathy for this woman just reading that much about her. Medically speaking, physiologically, she was not okay. Many people believe that this may have had something to do with what we would consider a monthly cycle in a woman and that uh, it wouldn't stop the flow the way it's supposed to. And so she continued to hemorrhage for 12 years unstopped. Unbelievable. And the Bible doesn't really tell us when her ailment began. A couple of people have tried to guess at it. It's really just guesswork at this point. Could have begun at puberty, perhaps, if there was some malformation of something related physiologically. If so, she could have been a fairly young woman. You add the 12 years to puberty, and she's still pretty... Uh, probably a very young woman, if that were the case. May have even been unmarried because the passage doesn't say whether she was married or had children or not. We don't know that for sure. We have to be careful not to read in. As I was mentioning, what does the Bible actually say and what's the main point? And let's not get into tangents that would take us away from the main point there. It could have been that if she was married, that she had endured some trauma in childbirth and that had something to do with it. But even at that, as young as they got married those days, she still could have been a fairly young woman with a full life ahead of her. That's uh, speculation. We don't know for sure, but we know that she was miserable for 12 years. And let's look at this situation through the Jewish cultural eyes for a second, too. We might miss how important this is to a woman, especially in the Jewish culture. Because of the blood issue and because of Old Testament law, she was considered unclean. And any time blood was involved, she could not touch other people or she would make them ceremonially unclean too. Which means that she couldn't touch a fellow human being for 12 years. Now we've all, I think, been traumatized a great deal by isolation in one form or another during some of the pandemic. Some more than others. We're not built for isolation. We're built for community. And it was awful, (laughs) I think there's everybody here who would admit it. In whichever camp we found ourselves in, it was awful. I hated it. I was praying for God to end it because we are not built for isolation. And I'm so grateful that we have these in-person gatherings now so that we can see real faces and touch each other with a holy handshake and do the things that we're called to do as believers. I'm getting close to finishing up the amount that I have to share today, and I'm going to keep about the last two or three pages for two weeks from now, in part two. But the Bible does not tell us how old this woman was, but what we do know is that she had suffered a great deal and she had spent every cent she had. She was bankrupt by spending all this money on doctors. Who knows how they may have tried to treat her? Understanding how crazy some of the medicinal practices might have been. Yikes. But what we do know is that many people thought that ailments like that would be caused by sin. And so she was really considered an outcast in so many ways, so marginalized that I can't believe it. And then we see that she had a secretive faith. Verse 27, after hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak. For she thought, if I just touch his garments, I will get well. 
Now, Joy and I were in Israel, thanks to you guys, and we were on the Via Dolorosa in the old town, and we were marching along through these crowds of other people, and there were people speaking different languages because they were from different countries around the world, and they would have their tour guides with the different flags that they would follow so that if you get lost, you follow your tour guide's flag. You go, oh, that's where we're supposed to go. But you could not walk through there without bumping up against people right and left. So crowded. And there are some cultures that are not like our Midwestern American culture where we have these bubbles. You know, hey, give me my Midwestern space, dude. You're in my bubble. And some people would just come right up to you. And they didn't feel that that was weird because that's their culture. And that would have been impossible for her to get to Jesus without bumping up against other people. Which means that she was willing to risk being really persecuted and sought out because she was making other people unclean. And for her to have even touched Jesus or his garment would have made him unclean. She was risking a lot in order to do what she did. And yet there was an immediate effect. The effect of touching the hem of Jesus' cloak, instantaneous. Immediately, the flow of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. And I'm gonna get ready to close with this. Do you know what it feels like when you've been sick for a while? maybe for weeks even, as some of us have. And then one day you wake up and you realize like 10.30 in the morning, wait a minute, I feel pretty good today. I haven't coughed a single time today. And you're afraid, oh, maybe I'll jinx it. Maybe I shouldn't say that. But I haven't coughed even once. And I don't have that headache that was that dull, throbbing headache that I've dealt with for weeks. And I actually have a little bit of a spring in my step. I think I'm getting over this thing. It's a great feeling, isn't it? But she felt that in the snap of a finger. She felt that instantaneously, and she knew she was well, which means that it was important for Mark to point out that when she just touched the hem of Jesus' garment, that was enough, and power went out from him and healed this woman forever. I want you to know, before we pick this thing up in two weeks, and I'm going to have to make a note where I'm supposed to land again, that Jesus loves you that much as well. And we don't even have to be sneaky about it. We can come to him openly and we can lay everything at his feet and say, Jesus, I just need you. And I don't want you only for what you can get for me. I don't only want this or that. I want you to own my life. I want to be a bond servant for you. I want to serve you in every capacity of my life. Whatever you tell me to do, and when I see it in your word, I want to do it. I want to be obedient to you because I know that's where real life happens. And that's what I long for people to grasp in the book of Mark. Because we know that he has an abundant life for those who trust him that way. Let's pray together. Father, it's so good to see how loving and gracious and merciful you are to these people in these stories. And I'm grateful that they're so real and so raw because these real incidents show us the reality of the heart of a God who loves us that much. And we see it so much clearly because of Jesus Christ. And Father, today, if there's somebody who needs to come and lay their life at Jesus' feet and lean into God's grace, I pray that they will do that freely, unashamedly. They don't have to sneak around and do that. They can just say, God, I need you. Please be the Lord of my life. And they'll know in an instant that their life has changed because you'll send your Holy Spirit to seal that decision and start transforming them to be more and more like Christ every day of their lives as they continue to abide in him, 
to hang around with fellow believers who are on that same path, to look into your word daily and find out what you're speaking to them about. All these things are available to everybody who will trust you that way. And I'm thankful for that. And I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.